My name is Humble Gray, and I am a Mississippi farmer. Now, old Farmer Gray is a modest man. I will not remove my shirt in public, heavens no, and summertime it's not but a farmer's tan for yours truly, no matter the fabricity of the noonday sun. But there was, on a recent occasion, a situation that challenged your friend's propriety, and one I do not wish to repeat. See, I built me a new milking stool and sanded it proper, or so I thought, for I ran my hand across the seat when it was done and encountered only smooth surface, smooth as if worn from years of contact with the backside of a conscientious dairy tender. So it was that, satisfied with my efforts, I drew up said stool and seated myself at the prodigious udders of my cow, Francis. Well, sir, no sooner had I begun to wring those teats for their lactic bounty when I perceived a sharp pain in my, you'll pardon the indelicacy, right buttock. That's correct, friends. On this stool, which I had apprehended to be as smooth as all get out, I had sustained a splinter. Well, now, thinks I, what to do? For while a splinter in the finger is amenable to auto-excision, i.e., one can dig it out oneself, this gluteal wound would surely require the ministrations of a second party. But who among my associates could discharge this office? "'Twould be a male, of course, for Farmer Gray is not so indiscreet "'as to imagine a female superintending this intimate extirpation. "'Aside from that prerequisite, I decided to leave the rest to Providence "'and drove my truck into Trouveau, sitting somewhat leftward all the way. "'Well, upon exiting the vehicle, who should I meet but my old friend Tad Goberton, "'a stalwart member of the Southern Conference and a firm advocate of predestination. "'Greetings, Brother Tad,' says I. "'Salutations, Farmer Gray,' returns he. "'What brings you to town this fine morning?' "'Well, sir,' says I, "'here's the situation in a nutshell.' I was in the barn with my hands on Francis's teats when suddenly there was a prick in my buttocks, and now I need you to accompany me to yon alley so that I may drop my overalls and display my backside. Excuse me, says Brother Tad, to which I replied in an even clearer voice, I want to accompany you into that alley and bear my bottom. Now, You'd have thought from the man's reaction that I had told him I was turning Catholic, for he turned pale as a sheet, muttered something about the lake of fire, and then turned on his heel and strode away. At a good clip, too. Nearly a run, in fact. I brought my own tweezers, I called after him, fishing them from a pocket, but he seemed not to hear. So I continued my trek in search of a deliverer, Next stop was Clemmer's Value Food Store. An affable fellow is Ethan Clemmer, Jr., and an honest proprietor. So I saw no harm in requesting an accommodation and approached friend Ethan at the cash register, where he greeted me with all the affability of a man suffused with Christian largesse. 
And what can I do for you this fine morning, Farmer Gray? asked he. Just a small favor, says I. See, I was squeezing Francis's teats in the barn when I caught a prick in the behind, and now I need you to accompany me into yon storage room so that I may yank down my drawers and bend over. I beg your pardon, says Ethan, seemingly caught short by my simple request. So I repeated, as I had for Brother Tad. Circumstances necessitate, says I, that I exhibit a prick in my hindquarters. Well, again, you'd have thought I'd asked him to pray the rosary, so vehement was his refusal. So I departed his establishment, was all but thrust out the door, truth be told, leaving me to persist in my quest for one willing to confront the exigencies of splinter removal. Next stop was Zeb's barber shop. Known Zeb my entire life, and taking into account that barbers were the surgeons of olden times, I considered the choice propitious. Hello, Zeb, says I, cheerily as you please, a small bell tinkling as I entered the shop. Morning, Farmer Gray, says Zeb. Back for a trim so soon? No, sir, says I. I'm here as a last resort. See, I was at the teeth this morning when I, when I sustained a prick to my keister, and I must beg you to take me into your back room and regard my naked gluteus maximus. Sorry, says Zeb. I said I need you, with your well-known skills, to service my nude rear end. Once again, you'd have thought I'd come in swinging the thurible, so quickly did he usher me out the door, while at the same time suggesting that I take my business to the haircut chain in Zare County. Likely they'll tolerate such antics over there, says he, as the door closed behind me. Feeling bereft at the callous conduct of my indifferent compatriots, I did indeed head to Zare County. Not to the chain barbers, as Zeb had so strongly recommended, but to the local medico, a fine practitioner by the name of Dr. Ossawig, who, after a short visit, removed the offending splinter forthwith and disinfected the accompanying wound besides. Didn't trouble you much, did it? asked the solicitous fellow. No, sir, says I, the... Only real pain is the realization that a splinter embeds itself far deeper than do the goodwill and conviviality of friends. And so was my lesson learned. I've told you about my faithful day laborer, the fully documented Mexican Juan Pedro, told me the other day that he'd like to work from home on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I said, Juan Pedro, you till my fields. You can't do that from home. To which he replied, Supongo que no eres tan estúpido como pensaba, which I believe translates to, Why, you are correct, Farmer Gray. Thank you for setting me straight. I think he looks to me as a father, since his own still languishes in Oaxaca, even brought his oldest boy, Juan Carlo, over to the farm the other day, said he wanted to motivate the boy to do well in school and go on to college, so he figured he'd bring the lad by to see what he did for a living and the kind of man he worked for. I felt right proud at that, though I assured the boy that I myself had never attended college and that the farm is its own education. 
"'Thinking of following in your daddy's footsteps?' I inquired, to which the youngster responded, "'Preferiria arrancarme los ojos que se dar por un demonio blanco como tú.' Translated, said his daddy, that means that the work I do and the man for whom I labor have made a great impression on him, and I think he will be doing well in school from now on. That's a fine lad you've got there, Juan Pedro, says I. Fine and respectful. Yes, sir. Now, I recently expounded on my adventures with the new lady barber, R.E. Ma'am, named Melissa, a.k.a. Mel, who not long ago began her employ at Zeb's barber shop. I related how, despite my initial skepticism, I came to regard her skills as just about equal to a man's, owing to the deft quality of her tonsorial ministrations. So I received this letter in response. See, it says... Dear Farmer Gray, having listened with interest to the story of your haircut, I am impelled to ask, do you, sir, now maintain that the fair sex ought to occupy a role in any profession, assuming a place of equality, or even superiority, to that of a man? To put it succinctly, have you evolved, Farmer Gray? Signed, Can My Daughters Wear Pants, Jackson, Tennessee. Well now, Pants, the query is interesting and the answer complex. Complex, that is, if you find the one-word reply, no, to be in any way complicated. No, sir, I have not evolved, and neither, incidentally, has anything else since the universe was created 6,000 years ago. But that's a whole other topic. Now, I might allow the preternaturally talented Melissa to wield razor and scissors across my manly scalp, but that doesn't mean yours truly is a washing female friseur. Fact is, I still feel much as I did years ago, when a certain Miss June Lockhart joined the cast of that venerable television show, Petticoat Junction. Oh, you're not familiar with this particular broadcast? offered in the days when television signals were delivered through a proper set of rabbit ears instead of an invasive cable wire? Well, that's no doubt because you're young and I'm old. But let me assure you there was such a show, for I have seen it. Not in my home, mind you, for Mama and Daddy did not hold with the electronic box. And a good thing, too, considering the low content proffered through the febrile light of the cathode ray tube, proffered even back when the networks cowered before the Office of Standards and Practices. It was my schoolboy friend Ezra who introduced me to the television screen. His folks, church-going, God-fearing people though they were, did not have the qualms minded when it came to the one-eyed monster, and so allowed him free reign across ABC, NBC, and CBS. Anyway, there was an evening when, chores done, I was given permission to visit friend Ezra, permission that came with a stern mandate to comport myself in a manner that would bring no shame to my family. So it was that I wandered from hearth and home into the great wide world, perambulating the mile or so to the white clapboard house with the name Caldwell on the mailbox. Come in, come in, says Mrs. Caldwell, so friendly and spirited you'd not think that an electronic viper harbored in her nest. 
Ezra's in the television room. Why don't you join him? Hmm, thinks I. Not an alcove for the Bible, but a room for the television. A mere mile from the farm was I, and yet truly far from home. What's that contraption yowling about, friend Ezra, says I, upon entering said room, for the television seemed naught but harsh light and raucous sound. Why, says he, this is the tale of Petticoat Junction, and right on time you are, for the episode has just commenced. Petticoat Junction. That's right, dear listeners. A show named for a lady's delicates, and yet billed as family fare about simple rural folk. For the uninitiated, I shall describe, said Chronicle. The axis of the story revolved around a widow, Kate, and her three lively daughters. Also, there was an Uncle Joe, a rotund fellow who moved slowly, did little, and forever complained about pain in his sacroiliac joint. A mere shell of a man, really, and quite sad to think about. Anyway, the widow ran it in, Uncle Joe rocked on the porch, and the three daughters spent a good deal of time swimming in the town water tower and having misadventures and such. Quite idyllic, except for the tragedy of the layabout Joe. But he was easily ignored, and the rest, well, the rest did catch my young imagination. The noble Kate, who, though she never obliged to say, was no doubt a solid Baptist, and her brood of well-scrubbed and polite young misses, they might not tout the Bible, not openly, but they clearly lived by its tenets, and so taken was I with the wholesome apologue that I became a fixture in Ezra's home on Tuesday nights when the show was broadcast, hurrying through my after-school chores and tearing down the lane so that I would be on time for that evening's exploits at the fictional Shady Rest Hotel in the titular junction. Well, sir... This went on for a while, and to my surprise, Mama and Daddy, who barely tolerated the presence of wireless radio in our home, did not object. In fact, they began referring to Tuesday night as hay pitchin' time, which left me confused, seeing as no right-minded farmer pitches hay after dark. I just know the folks were in a right good mood when I'd get home from Ezra's, so perhaps I should try pitchin' hay at night." Must be therapeutic somehow. Anyway, time and television are restive things, as I was to learn. For even as I cherished the bucolic narrative of these guileless folk, changes were in the works. Because one day, you see, one day, dear listeners, God-fearing Kate vanished from the story, having ventured from her pastoral junction to parts unknown. Worse, The unworthy Joe was given charge of the inn, leaving me to fear that through dilatory inaction and perfidy he would run the establishment into the ground, leaving Kate's girls destitute. But even this was not the most heinous development. No, sir, I must lay that ignominious designation at the feet of Miss June Lockhart. Her introduction to the cast in 1968 portended the decay of the show's moral underpinnings. You see, friends, as stated so baldly in the show's revised opening credits, Miss Lockhart, who had so charmed in years past as Mama to Timmy, young master of television's own lassie, was now tasked with portraying a Lady M.D. That's right. 
She who had been so revered for her virtuous demeanor and demure comportment was now to serve as physician to a whole town. Say now, Ezra, says I, as the interloper was introduced, do you mean to tell me that a lady M.D. is the junction's sole clinician? I guess so, replies he. Well, then, observes I, does that mean she'll be examining everybody, male and female alike? I reckon, says Ezra, oblivious to the implications. Ezra, says I, that would signify that this muliberal presence is going to be training her gaze upon male nandies, and even, I believe, visiting her hands upon them, come time for hernia examination. As called for by medical science, says Ezra. But out of wedlock, says I? Well, says Ezra, she can't marry everybody she examines. There's laws against such things. Maybe so, says I, but I am no longer comfortable with the premise of this show. Perhaps if this female medico were to marry a manly M.D. and quit medicine to raise a family, they might draw me back. But as of now, I must take my leave of the adventures of the absent Kate and her three daughters, as well as the sinful sloth of Uncle Joe, occupying myself elsewhere on Tuesday evenings. And so it was that I turned my back on the junction that very night, and no longer hurried through my chores of an afternoon, anticipating my rendezvous with what had once been clean, for it was now decadent. Ezra, for his part, continued watching said program. And how did he end up? As vice president of a hedge fund in Little Rock. Nuff said. But returning to the subject at hand, I'm here to tell you that as I felt then, so do I feel now. My opinions on distaff doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs remain the same. Take me at my word. Postscript. Now home on Tuesday nights, I never did see my daddy pitching hay after dark. Can't say why he quit, but he and Mama were in a cloudy mood those evenings. Not even the presence of their own dear son could brighten them. Go figure. Play me out, Zeke. <laughs>